Danny Dawling is a professor of geography in Oxford. In 2006, he and a team of colleagues started a project to remap the world. He's published with colleagues more than a dozen books on issues related to social inequalities in Britain and several hundred journal papers. Here to talk to us about inequality, great pleasure to invite Danny Dawling. As Kate said, how you cope partly depends on how you are held. This applies not just to us as individuals, but to villages, to towns, to cities, and to entire counties and countries. Liz read out a poem earlier today about the night you were born. And what you need to know to understand the rest of what I'm about to tell you is that on the night you are born, you have a life expectancy. And that life expectancy is the arithmetic average of the mortality rate pertaining at the time you were born that produces the average years of life that you can expect to live if you experience the experiences of those around you at the time. It's not an easy definition. Let's move forward. The first English life table was based on data collected around the census year of 1841 and gave female life expectancy as 42 and male as 40. Let's go forward. By the sixth table in 1891, life expectancy for women in England and Wales was 48 and for men it was 44. Many people lived longer than this, but so many babies died in their first year of life that it brought the arithmetic average down. Let's go forward. Public health reforms during the 1890s meant that by 1901, life expectancy was 52 years for women and 48 for men. Four years each gained in just 10 years. The turn of the century brought about dramatic drops in infant and childhood mortality. Sanitation living standards have improved. Let's move forward. By 1921, women were expected to live to 60 and men to 56. Eight years gained in just 20 years. Let's move forward. By 1951, women's life expectancy was 72 and men's was 66. Women gained 12 years to men's 10 over this 30-year period as a result of better maternity care, partly due to the new, very new NHS and a higher proportion of women being non-smokers. This rise of more than a year every three years took place despite war, rationing, and austerity. Forward again. Improvement slowed in the 1950s. Most of the easy victories had been achieved. In 1956, the Clean Air Act was passed four years after the Great Smog. The Great Smog caused excess deaths that Harold Macmillan tried to blame on influenza. By 1971, life expectancy for women was 75 and for men it was 69. Three more years gained in 20 years. Let's move forward. In the 1970s, the rate of improvement in life expectancy accelerated again. 
Social progress in that much maligned decade meant that despite cutbacks in healthcare and public services in the 1980s under Margaret Thatcher, by 1991, women were living to 79 and men to 73. Four years each gained in just 20 years. Forward again. Over the next 20 years, men caught up a little with women. Since more men smoked, there were more male smokers who could give up. By 2011, women were expected to live to 83 and men to 79. In those 20 years, women gained three years and men five. The six-year gap that had opened up by 1951 was back to four years and forward. Since 2001, under David Cameron and Theresa May, life expectancy has flatlined. The latest figures published by the Office of National Statistics in September of this year, 2017, are for the period 2014 to 16. Women can now expect to live for 83.06 years, remember that baby born tonight, and men for 79.40 years. For the first time in well over a century, the health of people in England and Wales, as measured by the most basic feature of life, has stopped improving. And just as Macmillan had done, forward again, the government initially tried to blame the figures on flu deaths, but as the years have passed and life expectancy continues to stall, it has become clear that flu is not the culprit. There is, by the way, for the first time in years, flu at a high rate right now in Australia and New Zealand coming this winter. But it wasn't flu last year, the year before, the year before, or the year before. The most plausible explanation would blame the politics of austerity, which has had an excessive impact on the poor and the elderly. The withdrawal of care support to half a million elderly people that had taken place already by 2013. The effects of a million social, fewer social care visits being carried out every year. The cuts to NHS budgets in real terms and the reorganisation as a result of the 2012 Health and Social Care Act, the increased rates of bankruptcy and general decline in the quality of old age care homes, the rise in fuel poverty among the old, cuts to or the removal of disability benefits. The stalling of life expectancy has been a political choice. Forward again. The first to be affected were elderly women, living alone in the poorest parts of the UK. Their areas had been targeted by the last Labour government for interventions aimed at improving health. All those schemes were cancelled in the years after 2010. By 2016, cuts in welfare spending, especially those affecting older pensioners, had been linked to a rise in deaths. Public health experts writing in the British Medical Journal called for an inquiry but the government refused. Instead, officials continued to claim that recent high death rates in the older people are not exceptional. Think Venice in 1911. An even higher rise in death rates was recorded for Scotland, but again, there was no serious response. Not one of the four chief medical officers of the United Kingdom has yet commented on what has happened. 
By July 2017, Michael Marmot's Institute for Health Equity was linking NHS, NHS cuts to the rise in deaths amongst those with dementia and to faltering life expectancy. A paper I co-wrote with researchers at Liverpool, Glasgow and New York, universities connected the rise in mortality rates with delays in the discharge of elderly patients from hospital because of a lack of appropriate social care. The Financial Times, the Financial Times reported that the slowdown in life expectancy that we were now seeing <coughs> had cut 310 billion pounds from the future pension liabilities of just a few British pension schemes. 310 billion. And still no response from the government, from the Secretary of State for Health, from Public Health England. You just wonder how bad it has to get before you do get a response. Life expectancy for women in the UK is now lower than in Austria, Belgium, Cyprus, Finland, France, Germany, Greece, Iceland, Ireland, Italy, Liechtenstein, Luxembourg, Volta, the Netherlands, Norway, Portugal, Spain, Sweden, and Switzerland. And that is just affluent European countries. Men do a little bit better, smoking. In almost every other affluent country apart from the United States, people live longer than in the UK, often several years longer, and the best countries are pulling away. Between 2011 and 2015, while our life expectancy didn't move, it rose in every other European country. It rose by a year in both Norway and Finland, and it rose by more than a year in Japan, despite the Japanese already having the highest life expectancy of any large country in the world. Forward again. Superficially, this might appear a small adjustment that will only have an effect many years in the future, but its implications are huge. Already, in the year from 2016, to the end of June 2017, an additional 39,307 people have died who were not expected to die, according to the previous government figures. 7% of them were people aged between 20 and 60, almost 2,000 men and 1,000 women. This is no longer estimates, these are in the government data. Well over four-fifths of the premature deaths now projected by ONS to occur in the future will be of people who are currently in their 40s and 50s. What has happened will mainly affect people who are currently in their 40s and 50s. Let's go forward. These extra deaths are not linked to more migration to the UK. The ONS now projects less in migration. They are not due to a rise in births. The ONS now projects there to be lower births in future. They are simply the result of mortality rates having risen in recent years. The ONS believes that this will have a serious effect on life expectancy and on population numbers for decades to come. ONS does not say why the change has happened or even point out how exceptional it is. The UK government does accept that air pollution, a reversible cause, results in 40,000 premature deaths a year. There are complaints and there are headlines about that but not about the fact that there were almost 40,000 more deaths than expected in the year up to June 2017. And it is now projected in the official forecasts of ONS 
that there will be an extra 25,000 deaths between July 2017 and June 2018, an extra 27,000 deaths brought forward in a year after that, more than 28,000 in the 12 months after that, and then another 30,000, and on and on, and still the government has given no explanation as to why the official projections are faulty. Forward again. Whatever has happened, has happened in a country where the official statisticians feel they can only point out in the seventh note attached to a press release that some figures have been adjusted. It is not difficult to guess the likely cause of the sudden deterioration in the health of the nation. If we do not address the policies that have caused these changes, the ONS projections will become a reality. My last slide. London, 15th of November, 2017. Research linking cuts in government health spending to higher mortality rates in England has been published in the British Medical Journal, BMJ Open. Ten leading medical researchers from universities, including Oxford, Cambridge and UCL, found that the spending cuts, and in particular cuts to public expenditure on social care, were associated with 120,000 excess deaths estimated to have already occurred in England between 2010 and 2017. It was reported in the Sun and the Express and the Mail and the Mirror and even the Independent Online, but the Times and the Telegraph and the BBC chose not to report the results of these findings. I wasn't an author of this study. Professor Lawrence King, who contributed to the study, said, it is now very clear that austerity does not promote growth or reduce deficits. It is bad economics, but it is good class politics. This study shows it is also a public health disaster. It is not an exaggeration to call it economic murder. Nothing like this has happened in my lifetime, and I have been looking at figures like this since I was 18 years old. We have influenza rising for the first time in the Southern Hemisphere. We have a National Health Service that is at crisis point. And we have a government that flatly and absolutely denies that anything bad has happened. And all of this is about to come to a head. Thank you very much for your patience.